Hello, and welcome to the Content Minds. My name is Ryan Broderick, and uh, yeah, I'm outside. Uh, my name is Luke, and I'm also outside because we're physically in the we're physically in the same space together. We're sitting on a park bench, and uh, is this Houston? This is Houston. This is Tavistock Square. And it looks like it's uh, as sunny as it could possibly be at the end of April in London. Yeah, the sky has no color. It's one of those like it's like the sky hasn't loaded properly, which is it's classic British weather. So, Luke, uh, what have you been doing with your free time? <laughs> I'm working mostly. Um, yeah, um, I mean, we should probably we should probably introduce the podcast in terms of like what's happened. So we. Obviously, we ended the podcast uh, four months ago now. Five months ago? Four, four five months. Four, it, it, that about that time ago. Um, part of the reason that we ended the podcast was because we were bored of talking about Elon Musk and AI. Uh, and the only two news tech news stories in the last four months have been Elon Musk and AI. I've been using my free time to learn Portuguese. That's fun. Uh, and I've also just been enjoying my podcast, Free Life. Um, unfortunately, I still am writing about Elon Musk and AI all the goddamn time, but it is slightly easier not to have to then talk about it after I'm done writing about it. Yeah, for, uh, that, that's fair. That does seem easier. So, what do you think? This Elon Musk guy, he's, he's gonna save, is he gonna save Twitter? I mean, I think the conclusion after four months is that it's a lot worse in, a, in a, essentially every conceivable way. This was not on purpose, but I got an invite to Blue Sky this morning and I got to try it. I am really interested by Blue Sky. Have you got any spare invites? I will get one in two weeks. Okay. Because they give you a one invite every two weeks. And apparently something happened recently where one of like the weird Twitter shit posters got a bunch of invites and brought everybody over. And so now it's absolute chaos. But good chaos. Yeah. So up until, I guess, two days ago, it was all like devs and Silicon Valley people. And now they're being bullied off the site by like degenerate weirdos. I mean, that's that's the dream. Yeah. No, Blue Sky sounds really good. I... I I'm very, very curious about that kind of moderation approach because I think it makes an awful lot of... It just makes a lot of sense. Like, having D... The gist of Blue Sky, I think, if you haven't heard of it, is kind of that you can subscribe to different moderation schemes. I'll be honest, I don't know. Uh, It doesn't have drafts. Your posts, if you don't finish it, before you leave the app, disappears. Uh, There's not a lot of bells and whistles. It's basically like two feeds. There's the feed of people you follow and a what's new feed which kind of feels like a basically a public feed more or less like it feels like everyone's just in there but that's it there's no I don't even think you do videos to be honest I mean that's good I, there are too many videos on Twitter um but so the, so the, the 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 public feed is just the for you page essentially from Twitter see that's what I can't tell I can't tell if it's algorithmic or if it's literally just everyone I had the same problem with notes I could not figure out what the deal with Substack notes was and I eventually I got very, very bored of it very quickly because it was just a series of men talking. I'm also terrified of following anyone on notes because I don't want to subscribe to new newsletters. And I can't tell if I if I can't tell what happens if I follow someone. Do I get their notes feed? Do I get their newsletter? Do I get both? It's it it, it makes my OCD go insane because I don't know what's happening. I mean, based on your newsletter metrics that skyrocketed as soon as notes happened, it's a you Everyone is, it's, it's basically a, a growth hack for your for newsletters. Well, I also found out that <laughs> I don't know if I turned this setting off or if Substack turned this setting off, but like I guess a couple months ago when they were rolling out the early version of Notes, it turned my newsletter posts into Notes posts and turned the replies into my comments. So 
I just scrolled back recently and discovered I have like 20 to 30 comments I've never seen on every newsletter post now. That's that's not ideal. That's a really crazy idea. Like, I already have a Discord for managing my community, and now I have just a completely unmanageable comment section. You know, you have two unmanageable comments. Well, the Discord manages itself. I've, I think I've created a, a pretty uh, authoritarian environment in there where people self-police. I mean, you have two comment sections on Substack. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, it's, uh, I also just, I guess, like, for me, in a Twitter replacement, I need something to bounce off of. I need, like, something to talk about. And on notes, I, there's nothing to talk about other than Twitter. Yeah, I mean, it, this is sort of the problem with every version of these. It's the same from Mastodon, is that everyone arriving there, the first thing they try and talk about is Twitter. And so it feels like you've never really left, and then you just go... Yeah, and then you get to Twitter, and it feels like you're just talking about TikToks or the news, which are now just stories about TikToks. I mean, Twitter is just awful now. Like, it's hilarious how bad it is and how quickly and how little he has understood his product. I, uh, I definitely have been feeling it fade... But when I came to the UK, it used to be that I would open up Twitter and there would just be British Twitter. Because I followed a lot of people over the course of four years here. I open up Twitter now in the mornings and there's just nothing. It's just Sky News auto-tweets. I mean, that's bizarre. Because that is not my experience of it. But that may be because I've unfollowed a lot of the news. Well, I never followed a lot of the news outlets because they're annoying. And the, the reporters are better people to follow. But it's... I don't know. The whole thing is... The whole thing is so bizarre. I... It's really hard to parse exactly what's happened to Twitter, but just every single decision he's made suggests that he does not understand what Twitter is. Like, the, the API one is the kind of the one that jumps out for me as being insane. Because the he is charging $42,000 a month for the, for the Twitter API. And which, at first, sounds like, okay, that doesn't seem that, like, crazy. But what it means is that, for example, if you're a news publisher and you use Social Flow or Echo Box or one of the other things, or if you're like someone who has their own like data product, like um, I don't know, the Guardian do with Ofen or the FTU do with Lantern and stuff, all of them are using the plugin for for Twitter. And what it means is charging forty thousand, two thousand dollars a month is it is so much that it does not make sense for essentially anyone. Like there are very few products. Like I mean, so. Echobox is, is one of them, uh, and I, I, Echobox published a public thing which basically said, look, we have roughly 2,000 people working with us, which means that $42,000 a month is, uh, what, what does that work out at, uh, $21 each. So every company, they have to charge an extra $21 a month to, which sort of doesn't sound like a lot, but at the same time, that's every single company. That's madness just to keep running. So it then stops making sense for publishers to work with echo box it stops making sense for people who have their own thing like their own um um me- mechanic for interacting with twitter they stop using it which means it just makes it harder to use twitter for essentially everyone and it's it, it, yeah and the benefits of using twitter have never been particularly good i i i i've said this in various capacities over the last six months i feel like i'm just ta- oh, once again i feel like i'm just talking in circles about the same bullshit over and over but the only benefit of Twitter, really, was that your boss was on there. So if you had a good idea, your boss could be pressured by his boss or her boss to commission that idea if it went viral. That's, or like you could report from the ground directly to Twitter. I did that a lot in the mid-2010s. Like I would file a story via tweets 
but even that wasn't great because then your shit just gets picked up by other outlets. So like, it's not, there's not a, I don't see a real benefit for a media outlet on Twitter now. And I, I, I didn't really see one 10 years ago, really. It's, I slightly disagree. I think that Twitter was very good at one specific thing, which was audience building for individuals. Uh, and I don't think anything's ever replaced that because basically reporting a lot, whether it's from the ground, whether it's like posting on there, it is very good at kind of building up a name and being like, okay, we know who this person is. Uh, and I think for outlets, it's very, very good at having a, it's good at seeding stuff. Like you can start talking about stuff and you, 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 you put stuff there and it can kind of, it gathers momentum and then goes to other platforms. Just think of all the prospective BoJack Horseman writers that we're missing out on by having a not functioning Twitter. Yeah, it's 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 uh, the the loss is incalculable. So many twee book deals not being commissioned right now. I I have looked at most Twitter alternatives at this point. Post news doesn't make any fucking sense. It's basically just like Tumblr, but slow and for like college professors mastodon i lost interest with almost immediately notes is promising in the sense that i can use it as like a backbone for publishing on substack but also i don't get it blue sky is pretty janky but i i I could see myself using it more because like there's like funny stuff there but then i'm also just like tired i'm pre-exhausted at the idea of starting a new thing somewhere I guess so. I mean, it kind of depends, like, how much how much your audience follows you, because if it's essentially just replicating the... Twi- I, I, I think posting on, like, Mastodon and Post News and Substack Notes and Blue Sky and Twitter is, like, madness. But at some point, one of those things will be the replacement for Twitter or a replacement for Twitter. I, I vaguely feel like they're going to silo a bit. Like, you'll end up with kind of... I don't know, academic nerds talking on Substack notes. You'll end up with shit posters on Blue Sky. You'll end up with news organizations on Master or whatever combination it, it, it pans out as. And I can kind of see that happening. Um, but it's probable, more probable that like one of them will be the one that most people are on. I'm more worried that like everyone stays on Twitter, but they just use it to promote where they're posting on the Twitter alternatives, which you're already sort of seeing. Like there are people who've replaced their display name with like their Mastodon handle or their Blue Sky handle, and they're still posting on Twitter. And I'm like, I'm not gonna go find out what you're posting on Mastodon, but how could it be any different than this? Well, it doesn't have to be. It can't be. Like it doesn't. It, like this. This is kind of the whole point. It doesn't have to be different. We're just waiting for the next thing to happen because Twitter is... I mean, is it unrecoverable now, do you think? Do you think, like, there is no way to make Twitter good again? Well, so much of it feels broken in a way that feels almost impossible to fix. The verification thing, I think, is, like, truly... I don't know. I keep looking for, like, a point of no return with this stuff. And I'm thinking maybe that's what it is. Like, to break that system to a point where I don't think you could fix it. I mean, although I have I have heard that there's there's still a list of who was legacy verified that you can access before they switched it. But like imagine buying Twitter and reverting it to the way it looked in 2019. The amount of effort, I don't see anyone wanting to do that either. Like I don't see any scenario where a person buys Twitter from Elon Musk or whatever and reverts it back. And by the time that that would happen, I think the world would just move on. I mean, the fundamental problem with what he's done here, which is basically figure out a way to make people pay for it, which is not crazy. Like, I probably would have paid 
a dollar a month to just access Twitter. Like I would have, like I, I think I probably would have done that. What? Like no, no. So, so like you can't use Twitter unless you pay a dollar a month. There's probably a number that I would have paid. I guess a dollar. I don't. Maybe two dollars yeah. a month, not a week. But instead, what he's done is set up a system whereby. I mean, just every single thing makes no sense. So he set up a verification system, which uh, is no... Because verification is important or like a valuable thing to have. But by doing that, he has made verification no longer valuable to have, which means that no one is paying for it, which is why he's now re-verified everyone with over a million followers except Jack Dorsey, which is... That's the funniest bit he's ever done. Like, nothing here he's done has been funny, but that is funny. Um... But what that means is that if you want to pay for it, firstly you pay for it so that your posts get more visibility, which makes the Twitter experience worse. Like, if your posts regularly go out of your, like, uh, uh, circle, they become brigaded by crazy people, and it's awful, and it's a very unpleasant thing. So you're paying... If you're a regular Twitter user, you're paying for your posts to be worse, but you're also paying for a service which has started to algorithmically hide the better posts because it is boosting posts from other people who pay which by default makes is are worse because they're not interesting which just means that every single tweet after it has like 500 people saying nothing yes. and it's awful which means there's no conversation anymore so you've created a social media platform in which conversation is de-incentivized which is it's, it makes no sense you're asking people to pay for a product that makes your experience worse and simultaneously is making the product you're paying for worse. We talked a little bit about this when it first launched, but there's an insurrection quality to this whole thing because it feels like everyone wanted to tear this thing apart and trash it, and then they did. And then the morning after 420, hilariously, on 421, all of the blue checks had a meltdown when they realized that the celebrities weren't going to pay. So all of a sudden they just... They just flipped Twitter inside out. And there was this, like, kind of disgusting feeling on the site. Like, it felt gross to be like, oh, like, these people have trashed this place because they spent the pandemic fetishizing, a, like, a, like, a blue cartoon checkmark. And now it's broken and can't really be fixed in any capacity that would matter. And I don't know. It just It's a bummer. It feels weird. And... Trying to replace it with something else feels equally weird because, like, I don't know. I'm, like, losing the interest in doing it. Uh, I'm, I'm, like, every day trying to remember what I used to do on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, one interesting thing is I don't – do you still use TweetDeck? I do. So TweetDeck is very odd because it kind of works outside the algorithms. So it just is relatively static. You know, you've got lots of lists, lots of notifications, stuff, but you can just see the change in it. So it's kind of like a, a, a window that says the same, but you just see a change rather than kind of like actually being inside the change. And just the character of everything is wrong. And I mean, you're right about kind of the insurrection feeling, but it's also kind of the insurrection feeling that there was an insurrection and they grabbed something and said, aren't you sad you've lost this? And everyone was like, no, not really. I mean, as an American, uh, I have a slightly different feeling about the insurrection and the scenes of people trashing the Capitol. But yeah, I, I suppose it's... No, the insurrection on Twitter. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Not the actual physical insurrection. The insurrection on Twitter, which, yeah, like, the, an awful lot of people are like, we have this now. We have verification. We we have the blue check marks, And everyone's like, okay. We, do, we never really cared about them, to be brutally honest. 
People got really mad at me because I was like, it's really weird if you have under 100 followers and you pay $8 a month to be on Twitter Blue. And everyone's like, oh, I'm sorry. That's really elitist. Oh, I guess we can't be as important as you, former intern at a digital media company in 2010 or whatever. And it's like, no, you don't get it. Like, if you have, a hundred, I think 100 followers is like the bare minimum for a website, you're, a public website. Not a website where you're talking to your friends and family. Not like a, a WhatsApp group chat. But like a public facing feed of content where you're talking on it all day. And I've seen people with Twitter blue check marks who've been on the site since 2011 are paying for Twitter blue, have 75 followers. And now they're just getting their replies to like, I fucking love science posts boosted and they're awful. And it's like, I don't know. Maybe you don't, maybe you shouldn't have spent the last 15 years on Twitter posting absolute garbage shit all like, I don't know. I don't think that's elitist to say. <laughs> Not everyone's a good poster. The number of people who think that posts by previously verified people were did well because they were verified rather than being good posts is utterly, utterly fascinating. In fact, like it, we, we've gone so far now that I think a lot of people forget that a lot of people who are randomly verified were randomly verified because they got to a level of popularity where they had to be. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other people in there. There were plenty of verified people who were also bad posters, but they didn't have the followers. But if you're looking at, I don't know, Chrissy Teigen, who, for better or worse, is a, a, a poster who incites engagement on her posts, let's say that. Uh, but, like, the reason is that, like, the posts are engaging. Not that she is verified, therefore the posts do better. And it's... I mean, there was that thing that went around, I think you might have tweeted it, the, the Steve Albini thing. Where someone was like, why, why is Steve Albini getting so much more engagement given that I have a blue check? And it's like, because he's a more interesting person and a better poster than you. Like, that's the whole thing. Steve Albini is slightly more interesting than Craig from Florida. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. God, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a hell site. And yet we're still there, all there. Like, I don't know what point I will actually leave. Like, I don't know all that many people who have left left. Well, I was thinking about this today. I was one of the, I was one of the last holdouts on MySpace because I was using it to manage a page for like a screamo band I was in, around two thousand nine, and I do remember like eventually giving up on it and saying to myself like, I don't remember the last day I logged into MySpace, but I remember, like, there was just a time where, I wasn't using it and I was kind of bored on the internet, and then, I discovered Tumblr. And that kind of replaced it. And the reason I got really into Tumblr was because all my uh, my actual real life friends were on it. And so I I sort of I'm sort of waiting for that moment. But I'm also now th uh, 33, not 19. So I think it's like a little harder to find that. But then also I have group chats, so I don't really need that. That's like the that's the existential quandary I'm in at the moment. Is that like I can't figure out where I'm gonna need that again, and it's a weird feeling. I mean, yeah, but there is a certain... I think the appeal of it is still, at a certain point, you wake up and you're like, what is happening and what is everyone talking about? And the place to go for that has always been Twitter, and I think that that needs... That is the functionality that has not been replicated elsewhere, and maybe it will, maybe it'll be like Blue Sky and you go in and you're like, oh, everyone's saying interesting things. Like, you know, Substack Notes, you go in and everyone's just, like, inhaling their own farts. It's a lot of graphs, I've noticed. Well, I, I mean, I like graphs, but it's just everyone's talking about their own shit and not about the thing that's happening. And I'm just like, I don't, none of this feels current. 
there's no like meta conversation right exactly and and wh- where would you, where else do you go for the meta conversation i don't know it feels like it's still twitter and until it's not it's probably tiktok but TikTok, your algorithm is so strong that you you don't understand the thing that's happening. Like, it takes a while for your For You page to be taken over by the meta conversation. The meta conversation is, like, everyone posting, like, Wes Anderson. And it's not a thing that is, like, ha- you can't have a conversation about it. It's just a thing that happens. Did you do a Wes Anderson video? I don't use TikTok. Yeah, me neither. Although I think that's probably a pretty good segue to talk about AI now. It's probably time, huh? The next most powerful thing in the world after TikTok algorithm. So I'm in London this week, in case anyone's curious, to talk about AI at a conference called the Observe Summit. Uh, And every time I do these talks, I get asked, like, how do you stay up to date on AI? And I'm like, random people on Twitter, which is a bad, bad answer because, like, that's going away, too. But also, it gets really uncomfortable when I when I talk to people about ai because like at first they're like oh this is so cool this is so exciting and then as like the conversation goes deeper it starts to get uncomfortable because i think they start to realize that like a lot of what they do on a daily basis can kind of perfunctorily be done by one of these tools in a way that is like becoming increasingly noticeable especially in like the branded world so i was at a stag do a few weeks ago and I feel like they're an extremely good insight because you basically meet a bunch of people. Yeah. Usually from someone's life, but you see like a bunch of people from just very different backgrounds, very different use cases. Like you don't talk to just only internet nerds, you talk to like a wide variety of people. And the number of people who were functionally using AI in their job every day was startling. It was, it is such a thing that has captured, I know it's captured a group of people, but people are kind of like, yeah, no, if I need to write anything that's a little bit boring or whatever I will make some bullet points I will stick into the AI it will pull it out polish it up and I will send it and people use it to automate like chunks of their work and just everyone was everyone's spoken about it everyone has like tried it you know you speak to a bartender or a hairdresser or a anyone is using it and it's it's that I think was something that I was not expecting for it to happen that quickly but because it, it just speaks to the level of things that can be automated. Like, obviously, those people have jobs they still need to do with their hands for the moment, so it doesn't matter so much. But the, I don't know, I don't know, we're, we're, we're not ready for it. I was getting a haircut here in London this week, and the barber was talking about AI and how he uses it, like, uh, all the time. And what's really funny is, like, I a lot of people in America, a lot of people in the media in America, actually, that I talk to are, like, it's fine. We've got time. People aren't using it. There's no one app for it. It's not like it's built into your phone or whatever. No one's really using this stuff. But then you like leave that bubble and you talk to like any normal person in a white collar job, and they're like, "Yeah, ChatGPT does like half my job for me." I mean, Thomas Scott did a very good video about this where he kind of put together the the, the various different elements, and he kind of led to a a point of where well, this idea called the Sigma curve. Which is basically oh, it's for sigma males who get cooler. It's the S curve of progress, which is basically stuff progresses very, very slowly, and then very, very quickly, and then very, very slowly again. So, for example, smartphones. Your phone between like I don't know, nineteen ninety and two thousand and five essentially did not change. Then between two thousand and five and twenty ten, 
it suddenly became your entire life because it became the iPhone and it became a smartphone. And then between 2010 and now, it's essentially the same thing, just the camera's a little bit better. Like it, That makes way, sense, yeah. Yeah, you kind of have this big thing. And what we don't know with AI is exactly where on that curve we are. If we are just at the bit where it starts to accelerate, there's a lot of stuff to come. If we're near the, near the top and it's kind of like, actually, this is basically all AI is ever going to be for a while, then it's like, okay, this is interesting. There's some bits and pieces it's going to help with. There's a fun new tool, but it's essentially an augmentation thing. But if we're on the other side and it's about, and we are like have you know 90% of the acceleration to go, then we are in a very different world. I had a meeting a couple of weeks ago with a, a guy who kind of got into AI through like the marketing world. And now he's like AI full time. And we were getting to know each other and having coffee. And, and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to drop a little kind of hot take on this guy and see how he reacts. And I was just like, you know, if you, if you have an AI startup, if you, if you have an AI startup that isn't its own model, right? Like if you have an app using GPT-4's API or whatever, you can't have a five-year plan. Because there's a very good possibility that within five years, the the limiting, the alignment that you're doing on that API could just be done by the prompt itself. And then if you follow that logic further, you start to realize that if this thing gets good enough, which I have seen no indication that it's not and can't be, the chatbot interface, at least as we see it right now, could very well be just the interface for all apps. Like... At a certain level of, of AI chatbot proficiency, you don't actually need apps. You don't need SaaS, almost, because it can just do it. Yeah, um, there are so many bits and pieces of... Oh, I learned what SaaS was over the break. Great. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the, so there, there are so many bits and pieces of like kind of plugins that you can do and, and ways you can change. But yeah, if you start to build into like software, like the idea of putting... Uh, there's so many... Uh, I don't, okay, so OpenAI have a... Uh, they're currently tra- training GPT-5. The last I heard, it was going to be December. Some of the people within OpenAI, a, a, my, a, a small minority of people, think that GPT-5 may be AGI. Um, Define it. Uh, AGI is artificial general intelligence, and that is the point at which the AI is kind of God. Because, yeah, at, at that point, it can then start to write programs to improve itself. And if it does that, then it within a very short period it becomes yeah it becomes God essentially, um, and it, maybe it's not GPT five, maybe it's GPT six, maybe GPT seven, maybe it's GPT eight, maybe it's something else. But it does feel like we're going to get there, and on the way there, like everything is going to I don't know it's it's genuinely I find it I find like I, I when I think about it I feel like I'm standing on a cliff like it is terrifying. I uh, I met some people from OpenAI and then I had. This is not even a joke. I had like legitimate stress dreams about AI for like three nights afterwards. But way back, you know, when we started to understand that we had moved into the second phase of web development, Web 2.0, I believe it was Tim Berners-Lee. I can't Google this because I'm in a park right now. But I believe it was Tim Berners-Lee who came up with the idea of the semantic web being next. The idea that the next phase would be an Internet in which everything could be talked to. And he, he, he mainly thought of this as a way to replace HTML. But when you, when you start to really dig into what, like, GPT-4 can do, like, I spent, like, an afternoon coding with it. And I've used it for other small tasks. I, I don't use it for writing or anything, but I use it for, like, usually coding because I can't code and I want to code and I want to learn how to do it. You start to realize that, like, if this thing is good enough, which it almost is, there is not a lot of need for technical knowledge to build things or 
and if it can deploy things, which it, which certain versions of GPT four can do, like um, like that story where it called a task rabbit. Yeah, like these things can can already be done in some capacity, and you can start to like fill in the blanks and realize, oh, like there's absolutely a world where your main interface with all of your devices, all of the internet, is just a little chat window, and that is a profound thing to start to wrap your head around, I think. It's really profound, and it also speaks to the extent to which, like, it can rewrite just everything, just every job. Like, I mean, if you have, like, someone whose job is to, I don't know, analyze data for a, you know, you're in a bank and the person is, like, a data analyst, that person can be automated very easily, and it can be, it'll be better and it'll be quicker and be more robust. And as soon as you start to apply it like if is this thing smart enough to do x job it becomes very quickly clear that it's smart enough to do essentially any job and I, yeah i don't it just also means that everything we're doing right now is kind of redundant so there's i mean obviously this affects like kind of news media so it's what we kind of think about more but there is a um a push right now to make google and facebook and other big tech companies pay more for the content that they excerpt on uh social media sites or on search sites um it's kind of a way to redress the balance of google and facebook eating the entire ad market but that push is kind of happening now it's broadly speaking like maybe it's an interesting maybe it's a good thing they're really struggling they've done it a bit in australia and they're really struggling to make the economics work google and facebook are so they're kind of leaning towards that we're actually just not going to pay and not going to use your stuff and it's a very bad time for that to be happening because at that time, AI is going to come along and replace a huge extent of that functionality. So we're going to have the same thing that just happened to the you know, digital ad market as we've kind of finally figured out some media business models that work, not many and not for most people, but kind of just hinting at it. And suddenly something else is going to come along and rewrite it. And it's the same in absolutely every industry that everything we're building now in, you say you can't have a five-year plan if you have a, an AI app. Like, can you have a five-year plan for anything? Like, if you're a, you know, if you're a, a bank, like, if you're a, a bank, you, in five years, if the AI is good enough, or in two years, if the AI is good enough, you're suddenly going to be looking at replacing a bunch of people with an AI. And, yeah. So I have a theory that I've been calling the alt-weekly theory, which is this idea that in the 90s in America, TV was culturally just dominant. You know, you, you had the start of MTV. It was this cool thing. And then it grew in the mid-2000s to become... Just like the, everything was television. And at the same time, you started to have the rise of like very untelevision, very unmass appeal products, whether it was the comic book industry, indie filmmaking, alt weeklies. You had this like very intense desire subculturally for things that were not mass market products. And I don't think it's an accident that we're seeing a return to blogging, popular creators, niche online internet creators, whatever, Substack people, at the same time that we're also seeing possibly the final form of mass entertainment, which is just a chatbot that we're all using. The final form of mass entertainment is a Marvel movie created by <laughs> AI. That's right. It's an avatar that I get inside of, and then I watch myself have sex with Marilyn Monroe. That's the future of movies, folks. But... No, I, I think that what you're going to have is you're going to have people who crave human content. They're not going to be nearly as profitable or as big as the folks who are fine getting all of their content via a chatbot. But that dynamic that we've seen over the last 15 years of Facebook versus not Facebook or viral media versus not viral media is just going to continue, but it's just going to be human and not human. 
I think that's probably... I think that's probably correct, but I just think it's going to affect more industries than that. Like, we always think about it from a content perspective. Because all there is in life is content. Consuming it, making it, sharing it. But, like, it's actually generally kind of, kind of interesting to outside because I'm kind of looking around to see, like, just literally different businesses and different houses and different things. And I, I just keep thinking that in every single one of these, there are 60% of the people who can be automated. Um, there are exceptions. Like, I think you will struggle for a long time to automate a bar. I think you will not struggle to automate a law firm, a bank, a, a human reason, a recruitment firm. Like, all this stuff is going to have a huge, huge degree of, like, automation. And I, I don't know how we go through that. And, I, yeah, it's what I talk about, like, kind of standing on the edge of a cliff. I, I think that the degree of automation we may see in the next few years is going to be on a par with the Industrial Revolution. But it will give people more time to use Twitter. People won't be able to afford it. Because, like, <laughs> like, like the the economic collapse associated with it is also astronomical. It's yeah, I don't know. I don't think we're going to gain. <sighs> Whenever we've seen this stuff happen before, it turns out you gain a, a, additional capacity for the hum, for humanity as a whole. Humanity can do more things because it has this tool. Uh, simultaneously, for the vast majority of people involved with it, their life gets worse. And you don't gain, you know, if, if you automate 60% of the people, you don't gain 60% on top. You gain 20% on top and take 40% off the people who already exist. And, yeah, I I don't know. I, yeah, it's hard to think about, I think, because it is so, it's tough. There, I have to stop myself when I write about it because your brain can start to fill in the blanks because we know how this goes. We, we've seen it so many times in some capacity over, the, over my lifetime. And you're right. I, I don't. I don't know where people go. I don't know what people do if this thing works. But then there's the other thing, which is that this thing might not work. The processing power required for everyone to be using generative AI is outrageous. There's there's not... I, I've been sort of describing it as like an arms race in two directions. There's the arms race to make the AI smarter, and there's the arms race to make the AI run on a calculator or a potato. Because if you can't get it to run without an internet connection... Well, I mean, it's kind of useless. Also, if you can't get the AI to speak your own language, that's a whole other thing. Like right now, AI is predominantly best in English, and it's most usable to people who have LTE or 5G internet connections on mobile devices or a computer at home that has that. But for most of the world, that's not the case. They're not speaking English. Like, so this is the AI problem, though, is that, if you make the AI smart enough, it solves the problem. Like, the AI will be smart enough to figure out the processing power problem. It will be smart enough to figure out the language problem. Like, it can do it. That's This is the bit that where it gets really unnerving and it, where it feels like the cliff keeps getting bigger. Have you heard the Waluigi thing? Uh, you'll have to expand. So I've heard many Waluigi things. <laughs> so this one isn't sexual. Uh, this is <laughs> so the Waluigi idea is that to train an AI, which in this case would be Luigi, you have to come up with an infinite amount of Waluigi's to make it safe. So evil uses of the AI. So so whenever someone discovers a new Waluigi, it's basically uh, another way of describing like jailbreaking it to do something bad. Yeah, I mean. If you look at the course of human history, particularly around tech, when we think of things that look exciting and good, they end up being boring and bad. And I think <laughs> if you default to assuming that AI will end up being boring and bad, I think you will probably not go far wrong. Yeah, that sounds right. 
Hey, Luke, have you consumed any content to stay sane? I watched the entirety of Ted Lasso so I can talk about it to you. Let's get into it. So, who's your favorite boy on Ted Lasso? I hate them all. It is one of... I, I, I knew I was going to dislike it, and I was surprised by my, uh, the, uh, my level of vitriol for it. I despise it. It is one of the <laughs> worst things I have ever seen. Now, I'm not specifically... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, like, wipe, wipe out the, the football stuff. I get that, you know, bits of it are going to be, like, a bit Americanized because they need to... I'm fine. Not, I'm not talking about the football. I'm assessing it purely as, like, a workplace comedy with some fish-out-of-water fish elements in the kind of UK-US yeah. thing. It is fucking awful. It is atrocious. It is... It is... Okay, so... If you write a, a comedy but give it the tone of a drama, you end up with satire, you end up with succession. If you write a, a, a drama in the tone of a comedy, you end up with something that is essentially made for five-year-olds, and that is Ted Lasso. <laughs> Every single person who likes it has dramatically diminished my opinion of them because I think that it is one of the worst things ever made. It is execrable. So, okay, hold on. The first season of Ted Lasso arrived towards the tail end of the peak of the pandemic. And I remember really liking it because, you know, I went through a lot of the things that Ted went through his first year in London because you people are space aliens and it's an adjustment to live here. And I'm a friendly guy that everybody likes, just like Ted. And I ha turns out I also have some anxiety, just like Ted Lasso. Fantastic. Who has it? What American who's lived here hasn't had a panic attack at a British karaoke bar? It's a universal experience. It is the true American immigrant story in London. Then I watched the second season, and I thought, hmm, this feels a little different, doesn't it? And I was like, well, you know, it's still nice, still fun. There's the, the Coach Beard episode. That's interesting. Then I started watching this season, and now I'm beginning to seriously consider that I had severe brain damage for, like, the last three years. So absolutely no judgment on whatever content who anyone needed to consume to get through a pandemic. I think everyone had like a joy-shaped hole in their brains, and I think Ted Lasso filled it for a lot of people, and that's fine. I think that now, looking back at it, and having not watched it during the pandemic, I think everyone has like a basically trauma-bonded with it and is not aware of how bad it is because it is fucking awful. And yeah, it, it speaks to... Okay, sure, there are some specific elements of like being an American in London or whatever that kind of speak to a thing but there's a relatively small number of people it is not explained like why fucking Joe Biden is bringing him to the White House but it is something that is I don't know it's just bad it's really bad like I can't okay here's here's what on, my, I have another theory so during the pandemic I had finished the first season and I got a little drunk and I went on Twitter as one does and I laid out a theory that Ted Lasso is almost identical to Scrubs the characters are all the same. He's made by Bill Lawrence. Well, hold on. So I was like, JD is Ted Lasso. He's like a goofy guy who has depression. Look at that. That's crazy. He's got, like, he's got like a jock friend, Coach Beard, Turk. He's got like a rough mentor, Roy, Dr. Cox. And he's got kind of like an acerbic, fun girlfriend at the time, Kaylee. But then there's also like the meathead, Jamie Tart, and that surgeon that doesn't wear a shirt. And then it's like... The owner and the owner's henchman, Rebecca, and, like, bald Rebecca friend. He's not bald, but I know the guy you mean. Yeah. Anyway, so I laid it all out, and Bill Lawrence responded and was like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> which, may, which means it is. Which means it, which means it is, and he knows it. 
And Bill Lawrence has a problem. As as a as a as a longtime Scrubs watcher, I loved it for a while, and then it, it got unwatchably bad. And then it had a, a pretty good final episode. The reason Scrubs got so bad is because Bill Lawrence has a fatal flaw that is true for Scrubs. It's true for Cougar Town. It's beginning to be true in even the first season of his other show, Shrinking, which is that Bill Lawrence lets his actors do whatever the fuck they want because he's having a good time on set. There weren't no scripts being written for the last seasons of Scrubs because everyone's just having a fun time on set, which explains why Rebecca is singing all the time in the new episodes of Ted Lasso. It explains why they're just, like, letting everyone riff and having a nice time. And clearly, I think Jason Sudeikis is just making up bad puns. Right, so this is, I mean, this is a big part of it. It's like, he absolutely loves making a pun or a reference to something. And that is, his enti- that is the entire joke. It is very reminiscent of Family Guy when they just used to make references rather than actually write a joke. There are no fucking jokes in this thing. There's nothing funny. And if you actually think about it and, like, try and quote a funny line, you can't because there aren't any. Because it's not fucking funny. And then alongside that, his inability to, like, think about characters beyond very basic archetypes is embarrassing which I think particularly manifests itself in the two female characters on the show, both of whom are solely defined by their relationships to men, and their entire plotline is them either trying to get over divorce or get a boyfriend. And that's the entire thing. Or keep a boyfriend, to be fair. But, like, yeah. the first two seasons of that show, they have two female characters who randomly get together to talk about boys. And it's, I think, offensive. There's also, like, a certain thing that I'm very acutely aware of after, you know, working... for an American company managing British people that I found that when you take British people and you kind of give them the feel good, the fake feel good environment of of an American workplace, things start to get kind of goofy. And that goofiness I'm seeing once again in the later episodes of Ted Lasso, where I'm like, I'm literally wondering if some of these actors are coming in and being like, well, I've never gotten a chance to do this before. Can I do this on camera? Can I play a stand-up bass at a jazz bar in Amsterdam for some fucking reason? Can I sing in a Christmas special? That I think is honestly one of the worst pieces of television ever created in in history. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. Ted Lasso's not good. I think I had brain damage. It was a pandemic watch, and that's fine. If it's a pandemic watch and you enjoyed it at the pandemic watch, that's fine. But I think anyone starting it now will be looking at it and being like, what the fuck are you all talking about? Because it is bad. Well, also, I think you don't want to talk about the football thing, but I think it truly is that the show is interesting when it's about an American guy trying to, 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 to manage a British football team to some sort of success, but they clearly can't write that because I think they don't know how or they don't think Americans would care. But when they stop caring about that stuff, the show doesn't make any sense. It's like, why am I watching this? I don't care about these people. I, I care about the the story of the football team. I want to know what happens with the football team. I also think, I don't say this the other day, but I also think that they kind of got screwed by Welcome to Wrexham because Welcome to Wrexham is so good and it's so real and it's so interesting and it speaks to exactly the kind of like the beauty and devastation of being a fan of like a small club and how lower leagues work and that sort of stuff. Um, it's like, it's, Welcome to Wrexham is probably up there with like Sunday Until I Die, uh, maybe one or two others in terms of like being genuinely a brilliant football documentary and uh, yeah and I think now comparing the two of them one of them is just like mawkish and sentimental and shit and one of them is beautiful and it's yeah I, I think as a result like the football stuff particularly makes it look much much worse in comparison well I think the, the main thing is that Welcome to Rexham was, was created by two people who care about football and I don't really get 
any indication that people working for Ted Lasso care about the football setting, considering it was literally a Super Bowl ad, and they just like came up with like a funny place to put the character from the Super Bowl ad. Well, yeah, I mean, well, the, the gist of things, actually, when I say there are no jokes in it, there are jokes. There are jokes in the very first episode of it, and all those jokes are taken from the Super Bowl ad from, like, ten years ago. Remember that? Yeah, well, I mean... Remember that funny ad? I mean, I do, because uh, he actually went to manage Tottenham. Uh, in oh, that. that's your team. Yeah, cause he, and, he, and he was, like, sees Gareth Bale, and he goes, Gareth Bale, he's English, right? And he's like, no, he's Welsh. And then he goes, how many countries are in this country? And the answer is four. And that's a funny lie. Five, if you count the Isle of Man. Yeah, exactly. No one's sure, but <laughs> like it is a funny line, and that line is just repeated verbatim in the first episode, and that's the last time there's a joke in the show. He makes cookies, you know. But there's not a joke. He's just making a fucking cookie. Isn't it? There's nothing funny about it. And he's like, "What's cooking? Good looking. I made you a cookie." But, like, the whole point about it is he's, like, he pretends that he's bought the cookies, and then it turns out, and the funny punchline is that actually he's made the cookies, and it's sweet, and it's sentimental, and it's saccharine, and it's shit. Because it's not a fucking joke. Well, the joke is that he's a nice guy. That's not a fucking joke. None of this shit's a joke. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We're sitting at a park. The sun actually came out, which is really nice. Uh... I think we tried to cut out all the sounds of ambulances and police cars. And there was one woman who sat next to us for a while just having a full-on phone conversation. And I made eye contact with her several times, but she didn't seem to take the hint. Um, But yeah, we're still free. We're still out of the content mines. Um, We'll come back probably again. Hopefully not to just talk about AI and Twitter again, but it's possible that that's literally all anyone's going to be talking about in the world of tech for the rest of our lives. Yeah, at some point those two stories are going to collide as well. And that's going to be fun. Oh, do you care about Marvel stuff anymore? I'm struggling to. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't know, like... Ant-Man Quantumania did something to me that made me reconsider the whole thing. Ant-Man Quantumania felt a lot like watching Rise of Skywalker in theater. When I was like, oh no. Oh, oh no. I don't know if I like any of this stuff anymore. Uh, who knows, though? There's a Guardians movie coming out. Why are there so many sirens? All right. We'll see you guys next time. Maybe another couple months. Goodbye. Yeah, bye.